You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to Apple Insider Podcast, episode 166. I'm your host, Victor, and joining me is the inestimable, the original, the one and only, Neil Hughes. I am so glad you're here. I really am. It's, it's something. Now, right away, I have to get a little piece of advertising out of the way, and it's something that, that you should look into. So there's a new podcast, and they've chosen to sponsor us, so I thank them very much for that. They're called Breach, and they are a podcast team that started looking into the biggest hack in history, and they ended up in the middle of the story. A mysterious voicemail. Disappearing files. It got personal. Breach is a new podcast that takes you inside the world's biggest hacks. They set out to answer questions about the hack of a huge American company and found themselves investigating a Russian conspiracy. Subscribe to Breach, that's B-R-E-A-C-H, in your podcast app right now. That's really interesting. I think I'm going to give that one a listen. I, I had, I'm going to be subscribing to that one. So today has been a big day. And I say that because today has been software release day. Now, I know that you went ahead and updated your Apple Watch right away, didn't you? <laughs> um, I've actually been out uh, traveling today, so I haven't updated yet. But uh, I've been running the 4.3 beta on my watch since it came out. Um, and very, very, very happy with it. Uh, much needed feature for browsing music on your phone from your watch, which for some odd reason was taken away. Uh, with watchOS 4, uh, an oversight by Apple uh, that has been fixed. So I'm thankful for that. Yeah, you've got the ability to browse the music that's on your phone without having to have it synced over to the watch. Very helpful. You got a portrait nightstand view instead of the original landscape Yeah, which, which I like view. because I have uh, some, some dock that I reviewed a while ago. I don't even remember which one it is. Um, and it does not hold the watch in... I guess you call it landscape mode, but even though it's a square, but uh, yeah, so it, it rests on there in portrait mode. So now I get the benefit of nightstand mode while I'm using that dock. So it's cool. Yeah. And I was looking at these sort of watch docks and watch stands uh, a while ago. I, I got one of my daughters an Apple watch and most of the ones that are out there, the vast majority, especially of the ones that were designed before Apple introduced watch uh, nightstand mode are all this sort of portrait mode view. They, they hang the watch with the uh, strap as you'd wear it on your wrist, as opposed to the way it is lying down on the table. And so because of that, it seems like this is something that makes sense finally for all the people that bought those stands. I'm, I'm going to derail this conversation right now. Do you mind if I complain about something that has nothing to do with the software releases that came out today, but it just popped into my head? Do it. So I'm trying to go all USB-C, right? So I don't have a new MacBook Pro oh, yet. Oh, God, help you. No, I don't have a new MacBook Pro yet, but I'm going to get one when they come out, You know, presumably in June or whatever, right? And so in preparation for that, I'm only buying – because I noticed that I have more and more devices that are USB-C now, and I love it. Um, I like the reversible switch. I like how small it is. I like all that stuff, right? So uh, I'm only buying things now that are USB-C. So as part of that, um, it's kind of difficult. So I've been like looking for, you know, when I get a new Mac Pro, I'm going to get a dock for it, like a Thunderbolt 3 dock. And, and I want to get like wall plugs that have USB-C out and that sort of stuff. You, you can't find the stuff that you're looking for. So like if I wanted to get a wall plug with like f four or five USB-C ports for when I travel, I need to charge all my crap, right? They don't exist. You can get it with one USB-C port. You can get it with a USB-C port and a USB-A port, but you can't get like these, oh, you're just all in on USB-C type of accessories out there. And to that same point. And I will tell you why. So 
there's PD or power delivery as a part of the USB-C spec. And that's the part of the spec that allows both fast charging and the higher and higher amperages like you need to power a laptop. And the problem is that you end up, if you're going to do that, you end up putting six ports on there or four ports on there, whatever number you want. And one of them is going to be the magic port that can support power delivery for fast charge and for the greater amounts of amperage to charge a laptop. And the rest of them will be amperage. Yeah, but I have this but with that, tons of, but ch- that's, of chargers that out there. Experience, but that experience sucks because they're all the same shape port. And so you want them to all behave the same way. And in order to do that, you're going to have to have a brick the size of a power strip. It's just it's unfeasible to be able to uh, build something like that with the power demands to support that power delivery across all the ports. So you can make a worse product with a worse experience or just not make one at all. I'll give you an example of my own experience, and then this will bring it back to the Apple Watch and why I was complaining about this. So I was just at a a conference in Washington, D.C., and next to the bed, they had only one plug there for charging your stuff. And I I was in Europe a few months ago, and I had a multi-USB adapter for the wall for the wall and it broke and so i don't have one right now and uh i forgot that i didn't have one i should order one on amazon but uh so anyhow i had to charge everything through my macbook pro so i have a 2015 macbook pro and it has full-size usb a ports on it and so i plugged my macbook pro into that thing in the wall and then i use all the usb ports to charge my phone and my watch and all the other stuff right but there is no apple watch to USB-C cable available. It does not exist. And so if you're on the road and you want to just plug in your Mac and then charge your watch through your Mac, which let's be honest, that's a common way of doing these types of things. There's no way to do it. The only way that you could do it, I figured, because I was trying to figure this out, you would have to get a lightning to USB-C cable and then get the official Apple dock for your watch, which has a lightning input. No, 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 no. Sounds sounds complex. Yeah, well. There is a four-inch long or three-inch long cable that uh, I have one of them. Belkin makes them. I don't want dongles. Uh, I don't want adapters. It's, it's, it's the USB-C to USB-A female, and you just plug your Apple Watch charger. I'm not having that. Charger. I'm not having that. I want to go all USB-C. I'm tired of it. That no, no dongles. So you were going to use the lightning and, and adapter dongle thing to adapt it over. And I'm telling you that you can do it the other way and have the USB-C one to USB-A that will be universal for all of your USB-A right, stuff. And you're going to need one of those in, as you go through this transition because it is a transition yeah, period. but there should – I mean, let's be real. There should be a Apple Watch cable with USB-C on the end. There's no reason for there not to be. Given that they've been selling a 12-inch MacBook with USB-C for yeah, how long? Yeah, yeah, I agree. So anyhow, it's just a, a wasteland of USB-C right now. And it's not really entirely Apple's fault, but Apple's not helping it. So anyhow, I realize that that totally – derailed this discussion here, but it was something that was top of mind because I've, I've been thinking about this and then I had an, a situation where it's like, oh, if I had the new MacBook Pro, then I would need a dongle right now and I don't want a dongle. I just want to embrace it. I, I'm fine with USB-C. I want to go all USB-C. I, I hear that. And you're not the only person that's told me that, but you really need to give it another year. Yeah. And I hate being the person to say give it another year because give it another year is the the marching band slogan of Linux on the desktop and it's the marching band slogan of next year Android will be perfect. But with USB-C, we are in a transitional period. We really are because there are a ton of laptops that are USB-A and there are a, a smattering of laptops that are USB-C. Right. And it's just going to take a little bit longer. You cannot buy a Thunderbolt 3 dock that doesn't have a USB-A port. They all have USB-A ports. And I don't want one. Just don't give me them. I don't want them. 
I think I think I can find one that doesn't have USB A on it. Is it a Thunderbolt three dock or is it a USB C dock? It's probably a USB C dock. Yeah. I I can look. We've reviewed both, and I've I've been funneling those to Mike because I just don't have the the laptop to care about it. Right, I don't. I'm right. still on a 2015 as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm ready to embrace this future, man. When this new MacBook Pro comes out, I'm going to go eGPU. I'm going to do all of it. I'm going to go whole hog. I'm excited, uh, and I'm trying to ease the transition because it's not like it's that it's, it's like it's not like it's that expensive to get a USB C to micro USB cable for my mic or whatever. You can get it for like five bucks on Amazon. You put like thirty bucks in cables and you're done. My question to you is: Are you concerned at all about the keyboard? Yeah, I'm very concerned about the keyboard, which is why I am waiting for the next model. One of the many reasons I'm waiting for the next model. Hopefully they fix it because uh, I don't like the feel of it. Um, it, it. It's loud. It's much louder than the previous MacBook Pro. Something a couple of years ago, I saw somebody like tested the decibels on it. And it was like way louder. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really hoping for changes to the keyboard. Um, and, you know, obviously the latest and greatest processor and all that stuff. And hopefully... At WWDC, where I expect we'll see some MacBook Pros, hopefully we get some more touch bar functionality as well, or or get rid of it, like do something with it, right? Yeah. It, it's interesting. There are people who, who haven't used it at all and never got used to the idea of it being there, and for most of them, it's a waste. Right. There are some people that I've talked to that really didn't care much about it at first, but over time started paying attention to it and started actually finding ways to use it and have embraced it. I think those people are vanishingly small compared to everyone else, but I love the concept. I think it's great. Um, I think it, the, the interaction with it's great. It's just that uh, they need to do more with it. It, it, it needs it needs some. It just needs some attention. You know, like think about all the changes that the watch has gone through over the last couple of years and how much better it is now. There's no reason that they can't do the same thing with the Touch Bar, other than the artificial aluminum out of space. Well, yeah, but I think that they could do a lot more with the Touch Bar, and it's unfortunate that they haven't. So. I hope that uh, the next Mac OS release uh, plays a big part in, in making it relevant or or they offer a high-end MacBook Pro without a touch bar for a couple hundred bucks cheaper for those that don't want it. Yeah, the Escape MacBook, as it were. Yeah, I mean, they, they already offer the low-end one, and a lot of people opt for it now because of it. But yeah, you know, the keyboard I don't think is that, that big of a deal. It's not going to be a deal breaker for me, but I certainly hope it's improved. Well, my concern about the keyboard is what happens when you're out of warranty and the cost to repair the keyboard is right. several large hundreds of dollars because it got a speck of dust under one of them. Yeah, I just lent my computer to someone the other day who's been using a 12-inch MacBook, and he started typing on my 2015 MacBook Pro, and he was like, ooh, I like your keyboard. I like the way this feels. You know, It's just uh, – uh, it's physics. Like They did a good job with that keyboard and, and, and reducing the travel and all that kind of stuff, but it's just not the same as the old keyboard. And maybe it's one of those things where we'll get used to it. You know, I used to only like typing on a big, uh, big switch keyboard and the laptop ones didn't have enough travel for me and all that. But here I am using a laptop all the time. So, you know, you do change, you do evolve. But uh, the fact that you can get dusted and it breaks and then it's so loud, I feel like they, they could probably fix those things at the very least. Yeah. So getting back to where we were talking about software release <laughs> Yeah, day. sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> because there was some software release today. Yeah. Uh, iOS 11.3. Right. ARKit 1.5 is a part of that. Mm -hmm. uh, HomeKit authentication mm -hmm. and a health records feature. Yeah. And most important of all of these things, new Animoji characters. Oh, great. Yeah, just what I wanted. I know. But, I, I, you know, going through that list, there's one thing in that list that I care about that we need to talk to. So we'll go through this a little bit and then we'll get to yeah. that, the one thing that I actually care sure. about. So battery improvements, which is marked as being a beta feature. Mm -hmm. But these are the kinds of things we were promised back in December that said that 
instead of just limiting your CPU usage and throttling everything back and doing it because you have a bad battery, we're going to start telling you and we're going to allow you to control what happens. And so this is those features. That's that's what we've got here finally is the right. ability to say, don't throttle my CPU, just turn my phone off when it when it runs out and I'll deal with the consequences. Right. But don't make my phone slow, whatever you do. Right. Good or bad? What do you think? Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't, I think it's kind of stupid, but it's also stupid that it had to come to this because Apple was a little clandestine about how they went about it. So, uh, you know, certainly I think that Apple was in the right in what they tried to do, but I think they should have been more transparent about it. So certainly having a phone that doesn't crash and runs a little bit slower is much better for the user, for the lifespan of the phone. Uh, than the alternative, which is a constantly crashing phone, which you then, you know, throw through a wall. Yeah. I mean, to me, to me, the the biggest thing here is the cheap battery swap. They need to just keep that price permanently. Just going forward, you know, whatever the cost of, of labor plus battery is just, just eat that cost, make it, yeah, make it a break even business essentially, and don't profit from it. And I feel like that's really good for the user experience. It's a uh, really good, uh, you know, it just makes you feel good about the company that, you know, you can go in and swap your battery because having had situations in the past where I go in and argue with them at the Apple store, my warranty is about to go up. The battery's bad. Then they run a test and they say it's fine. And they find out later, like they did with the iPhone success, the batteries are faulty and all that. And it's like, well, you know, maybe trust the customer who has the bad experience and who is bringing their phone in and give them the opportunity to pay you a nominal fee of $30 or whatever to replace the battery and use their phone for another year. That's a win for everybody. People are going to be happy. They're going to keep using your phone and it's not costing very much. So here's the verbiage they actually put in that part of the, the settings. They say phone batteries, like all rechargeable batteries, are consumable components that become less effective as they age. Right. And you can tap there to learn more. They lay out the maximum capacity, which in my case on this iPhone 6 is 94%. And, and this is a measure of battery capacity relative to when it was new. Lower capacity may result in fewer hours of usage between charges. And then they have a peak performance capability label. And it says your battery is currently supporting normal peak performance. Now, what kind of phone do you have? This is an iPhone 6. Oh, how is it in such good shape? Um, so how is it in such good shape? I had Apple Care on it, and the week before Apple Care expired, I walked into the store and said, I'm at the end of my Apple Care, and I'm just not sure that I'm comfortable with how this is going. Can you just replace it? And they looked at it and they looked it over and they said, You know what? It looks like you got a spot inside your camera. Sure, here you go, fresh phone. Yeah, nice. And the truth of the matter is, is it sounds like it ought to be perfect, right? Mm-hmm. This thing makes me sick. <laughs> Well, the the frame rate for animations in Springboard when you press the home button uh, or you yeah. launch an app or you switch between apps or anything that you actually do to try and interact with it feels sluggish, mm-hmm. feels jittery, mm-hmm. feels delayed. And I want to throw it through a wall. <laughs> I really do. This this it's my kids, my daughter has an iPhone SE and she has offered to trade with me. Wow. And I'm not doing that to her. Why Why would I bless her with this? She says, but you need a good phone, Dad. No, I am not taking your phone and giving you this. <laughs> no. <laughs> because parenting skills, you can't give your kid the terrible thing. No, it's awful. Well, that's very kind of you. So that's, that's what I have to say about this, is that even though my battery is in tip-top shape and I could not I – w- I would have a hard time arguing that they ought to replace the battery. They probably would. But at 94%, there's really no good argument for it, right? This thing is just terrible. 
<laughs> the the updates over time have made it worse. If they put out a SE two this year, will you get it? Maybe I you know I was really aiming at like a seven plus. Mm-hmm. I was thinking I could go with a seven plus or, or you know an eight plus when they update something. Uh, an SE two is interesting, but I like the larger display. Yeah, and I like the the features of the good camera. Yeah, the camera is what has sold me on the ten. I really like my ten. I I get it. I do. You know, even at ninety four percent, I'm still running down the battery within the first half of the morning, and and I know what it says is taking the most amount of battery, but it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It's um, I, I will go from fully charged at seven a.m. to twenty eight percent by about eleven. Wow, that's terrible. Yeah, it it is. And I again, I don't have a good argument for going into Apple and saying fix this because they'll say, but it's at ninety four percent. So, what can you do? That's the battery health part of it. The AR kit is is a kind of a question mark for me because Apple has done so little with AR kit. Yeah, yeah, you know that that was something that was heavily hyped and didn't really amount to a whole lot. So I had much higher hopes for AR kit, and uh, it remains uh, a novelty at the moment, which is unfortunate. I think you know they they figured that everyone would jump on building AR kit apps. And while that's nice, what you kind of want is for them to get to a point where you don't need apps. Just right. as they finally integrated QR codes into the camera right. app, right? Yep. You hold up the phone against any with the camera app open to any QR code in existence, and it will go ahead and do what that QR code says to do, which actually is a, a terrible thing, and I'll tell you why in a moment. But in terms of the ease of experience of just holding up the phone to the camera app and having it do something useful – is a good experience. And ARKit needs to work the same way. You don't need to download an app and then open the app and then go through finding the flat surface and choosing the object you want to land in the space and all of this stuff that's really like 10 steps too long. You need to be able to just open up the camera app and have it start doing augmented reality right there. So basically what we need is some sort of a camera integration uh, sub-app store in the same way as the iMessage app store. Except that that message app store has sucked. How many people have gone into the trouble of downloading apps for the messages part of it, for the messages store? Uh, I use them occasionally. Right, occasionally. So is that a a good measure of success? Uh, I don't know that I'm the target market for that stuff, though. Okay. It's, It's... a problem for me. I, I want it to be a lot easier to access so that it can be taken advantage of. You know, if you're going through a museum, for example, and there are displays and exhibits in museums, instead of the old guided audio tour that exists on a tape cassette somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Have your fa- phone camera app open and instead of taking pictures of the exhibit, have it do something augmented to that exhibit. And if it can do that, then it can do that in real life as well. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's my pipe dream, but I, I think that it needs to become a lot more universally applicable and a lot easier to access. I would love to have a uh, camera app store plug-in type thing. Um, you know, certainly there are a lot of cool things that you can do with different camera apps, um, but I always just end up defaulting to Apple's camera app. And I think it would be really neat to be able to, you know, do, do your own things in there in addition to what Apple offers. Well, there's a lot of power in being able to swipe open the camera from the lock screen. Mm-hmm. The thing that's wrong about QR codes is partly what's been wrong with QR codes for 100 years, right? A QR code is not human readable. That is, you you don't know what you're going to get just by looking at the code. You might think you know what you're going to get by looking at the signage around the code, but there's nothing that guarantees that's where you actually go. 
And so a couple of things happen, right? One is the idea that you could scan the website of a QR code and you know scan a QR code and, and it would take you to a website and the website could be malicious. It could do all kinds of bad things or just take you to content that's not appropriate for you to see, right? You know, my, my daughter holds it up and scans a QR code and it takes her to Pornhub is not a good situation, right? We don't want that. The thing about QR code is that it's not just the, the bad intentions like that. It's also the, um, the mistaken intention, which is if you go ahead and search QR code on Google, it pops up a top result of a QR code. And a lot of people who are graphic designers or marketing folks will take that first image of a QR code and use it as a placeholder. And then no one ever replaces it. And they ship the top rated search from QR code as their QR code on their product. And the guy who owns that QR code does pretty well because what happens is people spend all this money and ship 5,000 or 10,000 products with that QR code on it, with his QR code on their product. And so he charges rent. And if you pay him, he will redirect his QR code to point at whatever you want as long as you're paying. So QR codes have a ton of problems. They're just not, I mean, they, they seem like they'd be really convenient, except they just open to doing it wrong because they're not human readable. And, and I get why that is. It's just, that's the flaw. And Apple fell for it the same as everyone else did by integrating it to the camera. And good on them that they put it there because it is a little bit easier for some cases, but it's, it's, it's a problem. It's a weakness of that technology. So that's my rant on QR codes. Thank you for hearing it out. Uh, Apple Music gained the ability to do music videos, which feels a lot like just replicating what iTunes used to be able to do. Well, so here's here's the concern, right? If Apple Music has music videos, fine, whatever. If Apple Music is the vehicle that is used to do Apple's future content play for all of their TV shows they're supposedly making... So we just got done with trying to cut stuff out of iTunes, right? They cut the App Store out of iTunes. They cut, you know, the iBook Store is not in iTunes. All of those things that were jammed into iTunes got ripped back out to turn around and jam them into Apple Music. Yeah, I, you know, it, iTunes was a problem in and of itself for a lot of reasons, including the branding. Like that once iTunes was established and it's like, oh, we now we do movies. Now we do podcasts. Now we do whatever. But iTunes, you know, implies tunes, music. Uh, so Apple Music is is kind of in that same situation where it's like you've got some documentaries and some series and they're part of Apple Music and they're not music shows. So what are we doing again? Uh, I, you know, they already have a TV app on the phone. Um I don't know what you would rebrand the subscription as, but you roll whatever you're doing in Apple Music and, and in video uh, under some new banner. That's what I would do. But I guess it doesn't really matter. Yeah. It's just the name, right? But it feels like there's not enough attention being paid. It feels like a careless move. I don't understand their content play anyhow. You know, I, I, would I like to see a revival of Steven Spielberg's Amazing Stories? Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, but you know, there's like a million other shows that are out there too. I saw a sign the other day, um, an advertisement was like Mozart in the jungle season six on Amazon, six seasons of this crap. Who's watched any of them? Like, is, is anybody really watching that show? There, there's so much content out there that I can't even, there's no way that I could possibly keep up with all of it. And Apple's getting into the game with, uh, shows that your dad would think are cool. You know, like it's like, I don't even know. I don't even know what they're, what, like, they have no sense of real style, which is unfortunate. They get a guy like uh, 
uh, what's his face uh, who directed the uh, the HomePod ad? Um, Spike Jones. Spike Jones, one of my favorite directors, right? Really cool guy. That so favorite you can remember his name. Yeah, yeah. well, I'm terrible with names, but thanks. <laughs> uh, yeah, he. Uh, you know, that was a great ad, and that's really cool. And so it's like, just l- let's go down that road. Let's let's hire some cool filmmakers and make some cool stuff. But everything that they're doing on the Apple Music side seems to be all about mainstream popularity or something. Uh, and I don't think that's that should be the approach that Apple takes. But that's neither here nor there. I don't really care. I'm not going to pay for Apple Music so I can watch Carpool Karaoke. I know. You're much more of a Planet of the Apps kind of guy. Yeah. Love, love Jessica Alba and Planet of the Apps. Just just my kind of thing. HomeKit authentication. Here's one that I know resonates with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm excited. So the idea here is that peripherals that connect to iOS 11.3 or a tvOS device can use software for encryption rather than the dedicated chip on board. And so this should enable a lot of devices that have space in their their firmware chips to be able to update for HomeKit. I am very hopeful that this takes off, yes. Now, recognize that there are a bunch of demands in terms of space for the firmware and enough processing power in the device to process the encryption. So there, there are limitations. You know, if, if you've spec'd a device and you've done a cost down reduction so that your device can be afford- made affordably and you've, you've basically taken all of the room out of it to grow, then you may not have the room to make it HomeKit compatible. And that's a very real thing because when you're making hardware, you, you start by designing it, ideally. And then along the way, as you're doing the design, you try and look for places to save just so that you can get it made affordably. And then at the end of the process, sometimes people take a second pass of cost down reduction. And so if you've optimized on cost twice, you've taken all of the room to grow out of it. You've taken pretty much, you you squeezed the rock as much as you can possibly squeeze it. And there's no more left to give. Uh, The best products that I've worked on in the past were ones where we didn't do that first cost optimization step very much. We did it a little bit for just finding things that were within a good range and then did it as a second part of sourcing. Okay, we've spec'd out these things. We've, we've decided this is the price that we're willing to put together for this thing. Now let's go ahead and as we're sourcing, what are the compatible parts, the analogous parts that can be substituted that cost a little less? Still retaining the same features because they have to be part compatible. So that way you don't take as much out of it. You ship a slightly more expensive product, but it's one that has longer legs to it. It's, it's a difficult thing because the margins are really tight on this stuff anyway. You know, it's, it's, they really are. They're so thin because all along the way you have, you have the profit for the manufacturer. Any changes that you make to the product, the manufacturer uses as an excuse to raise the price and therefore make more profit. Um, the, there's, there's all of the shipping that has to get cap- taken care of shipping and customs. There's the distribution costs. There's the retailer's margin. And somewhere in there, you're supposed to also save a little profit for yourself. It's it's a difficult kind of thing. And making it more difficult is, is you know, you, you aren't the only one doing this kind of product. There are presumably other people in the category making similar things to you. And so, you know, Amazon is just as likely as not to recommend someone else's over yours, and then you don't make sales at all. You know, it's, it's, it's very much uh, a difficult kind of thing. To, to, to even be successful at all. And especially if your product costs more, but the problem is that if you make it cost too little, you've taken all the quality out of it and the thing will suck 
and then no one will want to buy it either. So very hard but to ultimately, win. Ultimately, this. this is a good thing for HomeKit and for manufacturers in the HomeKit space because this Absolutely. will make it easier for Absolutely. them to support all of the smart home platforms, which makes it easier for them to sell to a larger market, which makes them more likely to make HomeKit devices. Yes. Yes. Whether you're invested in Google or Amazon or uh, iOS, you will be able Cortana. to... Cortana. Uh, <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but yeah, this is a good thing um, for everybody. Consumers win. Apple wins. Manufacturers win. It's just a question of it, it being embraced, right? Uh, yeah. These things come out all the time. Apple announces them, and then they, you know, just take a little bit of time to get going. Especially, especially when you're talking about accessories, it takes a while for them to be developed and software updates and all that kind of stuff. Blah 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 blah. So we'll see what happens. You know, this is not going to be something that you you're not going to install iOS 11.3 and then be like, oh yay! It'll be one of those things like a year from now where quietly you'll realize that uh, now it's it's part of your life. Yeah, these things pay dividends slowly. They pay dividends quietly. Now, one of the things that will pay dividends a little bit better is that when you update to 11.3, you, you have to tap through continue to, to finish the upgrade. And there are a couple of screens that display that tell you about what these features are. And one of them might be that tells you about the music app and another might tell you about the TV app. But one of them, one of them tells you about what Apple's doing about privacy. And they have this neat little icon that's two people standing across from each other shaking hands. You sort of view them from the side. And it says, basically, that, that this is the icon that we're going to use when Apple is asking you for things that are private information. Or when Apple is, is giving you a prompt that deals with your private information. And when you see this icon, you can be reassured that we're handling it in a secure method and that we're not asking for too much and that we're being responsible about it. And, and this icon is our way of making you aware of it, that this is the time to think about privacy. Yeah, you know, this is the kind of transparency that I was uh, talking about when it came to the battery stuff that I hope that that I hope that Apple will learn to apply to most of their business, right? Like, they should have just come out about the battery thing and said, eh, here's what we did, here's why we did it, and then let there be no controversy. But they didn't do that. But here is, you know, they're doing it right. If if something is going to be accessing your personal information, you have a right to know, and most people are probably going to be okay with it. But if you're not being transparent with people about it and you're not letting them know about it, then they're going to be surprised when they find out afterwards and they're annoyed. Yeah. Now, the other thing that they're doing is is interesting. You know, there's been a lot of concerns about Facebook's news feed and Facebook's news algorithm, right? And so with Apple, Apple's news feed has decided that what they're going to do is they're going to take the stories that are vetted, the stories that are are ones that they've looked at and are certain are true, and that they're going to give those a blue background, and they're going to place them in the top stories, and they're going to keep them pinned to the top, and they're going to refresh them three times a day so that you can always be sure you're getting things at the top of your feed that are sure to be true. Nice little bit of shade they're throwing out. I think there? it's great. I think that uh, I think that curation and uh, experts are something that um, uh, are sorely needed in our world, uh, so that we can vet things and be sure that the information is accurate. Uh, I'm not a big subscriber to conspiracy theories or anything like that, and uh, so I think that when we have trusted sources of information, that is a good thing, and I think that. When our devices uh, will spotlight 
trusted sources of information. It doesn't prevent you from getting your news elsewhere. But um, for the type of person who may not, you know, who just kind of accepts what is given to them, it's good to be in a in an ecosystem where you can have trust. Yes. Now, I want to tell you about something that, that was really cool that I experienced recently. And after I tell you about that, we're going to join a few people for a special interview about social and privacy. So first, Away is a company that offers high-quality luggage, and it's designed to be resilient, resourceful, and essential to the way you travel. And it's available in a variety of colors and four different sizes, including carry-on sizes that are compliant with all the major U.S. airlines and actually fit as, as well within the regulations for other airlines around the world, in my experience. The, the Away suitcase is lightweight. It's made with premium German polycarbonate that's unrivaled in strength and impact resistance. And it's got a TSA-approved combination lock uh, for 360-degree spinner wheels and a patent-pending compression system so that if you're having trouble stuffing it all in, it will help you do that. Both sizes of the carry-on are able to charge anything that's powered by a USB cord, and a single charge will power your iPhone five times. This is really cool. So what they do is they took a, uh, a battery power bank, and they have a slot underneath the uh, the handle that you pull up to roll those suitcase. And that slot is spring-loaded and, and sort of has a catch-and-release kind of thing, the same way a micro SD slot does. And you push the battery down in, and it latches in place. And when you want to remove the battery, you can just tap it and pull it out. And so it works very well in, in the airports where they're very, very uh, concerned about batteries, especially after, like, the Samsung incident from a year or two ago. And so you just take the power bank out, and, and keep it with you, and you don't have to worry about any kinds of regulations about batteries. It's really super easy. You can charge it wherever you are without having to have, you know, charge the suitcase. And when you want, you just put it right back in the suitcase, and you can put your phone on top of your suitcase and charge while you're sitting in the lounge. It's really, it's really pretty cool. Um, the thing is lightweight. The finish on it is really sleek. And I, I have... You know, I have five or six different battery power banks. I have the big ones that can power a laptop. I have the small ones. I do this when I go to CES, right? I, I use all these different power banks to try and charge everything because you run out of power so fast. Having one built into the luggage is really quite cool. I am I am super pleased with this. And they have this, this tryout policy. So, you know, you can try one out for 100 days. You can travel with it. You can Instagram with it. You can just, you know, chill with it. And if you decide you don't like it, even after you've traveled with it, you can go ahead and return it for a full refund. They're, they're totally cool if the wheels are scuffed up and the whole thing got, you know, manhandled by the baggage handlers. They're cool. They're totally all right. And lifetime warranty. Anything breaks, they'll fix it. That's just, that's that's the policy. And it's free shipping to the continental U.S., so for 20 bucks off of a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash Apple Insider and use the promo code Apple Insider during checkout. That's awaytravel.com slash Apple Insider. And the promo code is Apple Insider for $20 off your away suitcase. I do too. It's so good. And I'm, I'm really a critic of suitcases because I have all these – I used to travel – uh, internationally four or five times a year. And I would travel domestically, uh, once a month, like for a week out of every month. And there was one year where I flew 105 times a year. And, and so I, I was a suitcase connoisseur and travel bag connoisseur. And I, you know, I used all kinds of companies, other bags and really learned how to pack quickly. Um, I once packed for an international flight with 10 minutes to spare. 
I yeah, but their I website right thing. now they got a monogram edition too, where you can get your initials on it, so you can distinguish at the airport and stuff. I think it's cool stuff. I like it. Definitely. Built-in TSA security locks. Definitely. Yeah, so TSA has those ten different keys or whatever it is, and this is a combination lock that locks the pull, zipper pulls, but TSA can release it using one of their special keys. I, I tend not to lock things anyway, just because I. I I'm not convinced that the TSA guys know that they have those keys and they'll just break something open anyway. But, you know, the the upside to that would be if they did break it, the uh, way people would fix it. Yeah, I use the TSA locks. I've had stuff go missing from my bag before. So then I have it with the lock um, uh, indicator. So it lets me know when it's been used because they don't always leave a note when they open your bag. So that way mm-hmm. I can prove that they're in my bag because I had a dispute where some stuff went missing a few years ago and I tried to complain and I... Long story. I, I never ended up getting anything back from them, yeah, of course. Yeah, they told you to pound sand, didn't they? Yeah, they did. There, there's no win. When something like that happens, the first thing they do is they blame the airline. I actually I actually spoke to the congressman who's on the TSA Oversight Committee about it. <laughs> yeah, he was probably very uninterested in speaking to you about that one. No, he, no, no. no. That, that is something um, that a lot of people don't realize. Contact your local and national politicians. Reach out to their offices, uh, and they usually engage with you. Hmm. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't, you know, they don't try, they don't think about it, they don't whatever. Uh, I usually, even if it's somebody who politically I don't agree with, I usually have a uh, good experience with them calling me back or um, giving me an answer at the very least or or showing some interest. Uh, and yeah. I, I, I like that. So, Well, I, you know, I, I filed an FCC complaint against Verizon not too long ago, and I want to encourage our listeners to remember that that's a power that they have as well. Right. Yeah. You know, so there, there are all sorts of ways to petition. Exercise your rights. Absolutely. So thank you for joining me for this special segment of the Apple Insider podcast. Joining us are Yoav and Omer. You're from My Permissions, is that correct? That's correct. Great. Can you introduce yourselves a little bit and tell me about what you're doing and how My Permissions came into being? So hi, this is Omer here. Uh, thank you for having us. My Permissions uh, was founded approximately six years ago uh, when it was someone navigated, uh, basically opened his uh, Twitter account and found that uh, um, there was some uh, spamming uh, tweets all over his account. And he was trying to figure out, hey, what's going on? How can, we, how can it be that there is something that is spamming my own account, my own Twitter feed, so to speak? And then uh, they started figuring out what's going on, and eventually they found that, hey, there is a third-party application on top of Twitter that has access to my feed and can post on my behalf. Let's figure this out. Let's see what can what we can do about it. The f- very first product line by uh, My Permissions was uh, uh, mypermissions.org, which was ba- basically a portal of links to all the various uh, services uh, privacy settings pages. And this basically allowed users to quickly identify and find out uh, um, privacy settings for Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Google, Dropbox, Yahoo, and other services, and basically just uh, um, clean and revoke uh, unnecessary or undesired apps um, from their from their accounts. Um, Fast forward uh, a few years, and today my permissions has a very popular uh, application, mobile app for Android and iOS, that allows consumers to basically scan their uh, accounts on, again on Facebook, on Twitter, on Google, uh, Instagram, and other services, and find uh, various third-party applications that uh, access their data um, 
and can potentially use it against them, as we saw in the Cambridge Analytica Facebook scandal. Okay, and is it primarily around just the the third-party permissions for those services, or does it also cover things like what information is visible to which groups or which links between those? Twitter is linked to Facebook or not, or... Does it also cover things like Android, where Android permissions allow Facebook Messenger to scrape phone logs? Mm-hmm. So you ask two questions here. Uh, when you first discuss the, the link between Twitter to Facebook, so it basically means that Twitter is a third-party application that rides on top of Facebook and may have access to your Facebook profile data. So in this sense, Twitter acts exactly the same like uh, Candy Crush uh, with your Facebook profile. When it comes to Android applications, yes, our Android version today does handle uh, Android applications uh, that are installed on your own device and does let you know and see whether your flashlight application has access to your contact list or GPS location. Uh, But having said that, it's somewhat different, of course, than the third-party applications that ride on top of, of, of your social accounts, social media accounts. Uh, and therefore behave differently per the limitations of that platform, Android versus Facebook or Twitter and others. Mm-hmm. And is is it also looking at things like what applications have access to my tweets or posts versus what applications have the ability to create their own posts and post for me? Yes. So basically having access to your uh, profile, uh, public profile, for example, they can see uh, apps that have permission to see that uh, public profile data can read your posts, for example. Um, some applications do have the permission or are granted the, the permission by, by us, the users, to post on, on our, our own behalf. So yeah, definitely. One of the things that I, I think has made people aware of, of how big Cambridge Analytica is in, in this, this problem is, is that you know, they sort of knew peripherally, they sort of knew off on the side that they were sharing all this information and that it was possibly being used. But many people weren't really aware how much was being collected and how all the different ways that it could be used. You know, when when Cambridge Analytica took the information that was gathered from a harmless quiz and then turned it into using it for something else entirely, people weren't really aware of that. Do, Do you agree? Yeah, I, I agree, and I think that people uh, both uh, weren't aware of it, and also like maybe didn't even care. They just wanted to use like uh, free services, um, and it caused you know uh, eventually this uh, uh, scandal. Uh, people wanted to, um, to play games, to play quizzes, um, and they didn't maybe even uh, uh, have uh, you know the the right uh, knowledge about what's going on with permissions. Maybe they are not reading. And we do see like um, on our app, on my permissions, uh, uh, when someone is scanning, um, you know, Facebook, for example, for the first time, they see like tons of apps that they never knew uh, that's running on top of their Facebook and, and sending their data to third party applications. So I think it's it's lack of awareness and understanding. And I think that's one of the major problems of of uh, the privacy uh, uh, market. Uh, the solutions are too complicated, um, and I think that people need uh, better tools that are more easy uh, to understand, to use. Um, that's part of what we're trying to build um, in my permissions and in other tools that we are building right now to bring privacy uh, to the masses in a, in a like a more uh, easy to use and friendly kind of uh, experience. 
um, because people gave up on the, the right for privacy, mostly because they didn't know what to do and where to go. Um, and we can't uh, you know, expect uh, um, companies like Facebook um, to help uh, um, you know, the consumers uh, with all regards to privacy because that's, that's their business. It kind of you know, go, goes against their interest um, to uh, you know, help people uh, protect their data. They uh, make a lot of profit with uh, you know, advertising uh, uh, that runs um, on top of this data. Yeah, the, the, the saying that we hear a lot over here these days is if, if you aren't paying for the product, you are the product. Right, right. And I think that's, that's you know, maybe a good opportunity to change the approach and, and maybe be more aware. And instead of waiting for a top-down solution, you know, to use like a bottom-up uh, approach and, and use tools like my permissions and, and others um, to uh, know more about what you're doing, to read the permissions that you're granting when you download an app, uh, and so on and so forth. So explain to me how my permissions works. What, what is the, the new user's experience like? Yeah, so whenever you, you go to my permissions, um, it asks you to scan um, your uh, social accounts, either Facebook, Google, Twitter, Instagram, and etc. Um, and then it makes, uh, you know, you put your credentials and we scan your profile. And then uh, you get like a list of all the apps, the third-party apps that runs on top of um, the service that you picked. Um, and it shows you uh, who has access to which uh, information, who has access to your photos, to your microphone, to your location, um, who is more dangerous than the other based on some uh, risk assessment technology we have. And from one place, very easily, you can either uh, remove the app or, or keep it. Um, that's pretty much what we, what we do in uh, my permissions. So, uh, for, first of all, you mentioned, of course, Facebook's business model is about collecting and then reselling the information. Right. So, what is your business model and how is that different? So, we uh, let you uh, scan uh, everything on one place uh, very easily. Um, and whenever you want to remove something, <clears throat> then uh, we charge um, $10 uh, one time per year. Um, so, we have nothing to do with advertising. We are the good guys. Um, and we want to, um, you know, let you, uh, uh, um, you know, be more aware and to control your privacy. Um, so we do it, uh, you know, with the one-time yearly payment of $10. If you want to remove the, the services you don't want to use anymore um, from one place, either for Facebook or for Google or for, for all the rest that we support. Okay. And is, is there any concern about sharing the account login information with my permissions. You know, it seems like one of the things that I think about is the, the centralization of all of these things. When we lump all of these things together, is there a risk of having that information centralized? So, no. Uh, the way it works is that we do not uh, collect or store uh, your information, your credentials anywhere on our servers. So there is no risk of centralizing the data. Um, by uh, potentially hacking to my permission servers, uh, you can cannot find anything. Uh, there is nothing to, to, to steal from the servers because we uh, store no information from the users whatsoever. Okay, that's that's reassuring. That's good to know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's it's questions like this that I, I should be asked. I want to give you the opportunity to tell us that because. You know, when, when you course. say, all you have to do is go to this one app, this one site, and give them all your information, it's, it's like, well, how does that work exactly? 
Yeah, of course. It's definitely scary. It's like uh, going to your to an online service that uh, allows you to enter your uh, email and or password just to let you know whether it was uh, um, uh, it was uh, included in some previous data breaches uh, in the past, uh, right? We have to be responsible online citizens. We have to take control of our, of access to our own data. And we have to 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 learn. It's one of the skill I think today in this um, day and age. We need to learn uh, the skill of who to give our trust and how things work, and how our data is handled or mishandled. And and yeah, that's true. Uh, I would uh, definitely understand if someone would ask, "What are you going to do with our with my data, and how are you going to protect it?" And we believe we do take measures in order to. Um, um, to to safe keep and safeguard the uh, uh, users' data, and if we don't do not need to store the data, we don't, definitely don't intend to, and uh, and that's it. So you you said something that really captured my attention for a moment. There, it was the the idea that people really need to learn more about this, learn more about how to choose how to trust and choose where their data goes. How how do you think people become more aware of this? I think once again, like the the um, the scandal with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, is maybe a wake up call for people to uh, understand that um, you know signing for uh, to any uh, free service um, can cost, and and I think that now the attention um, is different. It's all over the news. Everyone hear uh, hear about it. I think I see like people that never said anything about privacy, uh, um, you know, tweeting and posting all over the place. Um, and I think that our uh, responsibility um, as a privacy company for consumers is to uh, provide people with the right tools, uh, with an easy to use uh, solution. Um, and also it's, it's you know, the, the consumers, the customers, uh, uh, the people, uh, um, you know, responsibility to read more, to understand better, and to understand that um, even if Facebook, uh, you know, uh, wants to collect data, um, you know, mainly to uh, uh, personalize the, the advertising we get, um, there are other apps and there are other services and Facebook is just, you know, the tip of the iceberg and it can be like, um, you know, in any other uh, um, app or digital service that we're using. So, so it's, it's important to read and, and it's important to, uh, you know, uh, track what's going on. Um, and not just, you know, press uh, the download button and, and, you know, that's it. Yeah, this is my concern. You know, I'm, I'm worried that this this scandal happens. We've had scandals in the past that have happened and they all sort of blow over after a while. And I think Facebook's counting on that, that, <clears throat> you know, in, in three weeks, no one will remember this. It will be over and people will be back to normal. That That people aren't aware that, you know, Facebook owns WhatsApp, that Facebook owns Instagram. That, mm -hmm. that all of these things are intertwined. And it's like a little ironic to me that people are, are posting these complaints about privacy and their concerns about privacy on social media. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, yeah, I think we have to consider something like this. Um, with the rapid uh, uh, rate of changes all the time, there will always be new tools and new technologies, and there will always be uh, entities, whether it's corporations, governments, hackers, individuals doesn't matter who will take advantage of those tools for their own benefits uh, and more often than not uh, on the at the expense of other people um, 
this rate of change will only increase. We will only see more tools and more technologies that will put significant uh, benefit at the hands of others. Uh, for us or, or the masses, all is left is to educate ourselves. That's one, and we can discuss that, and uh, and use tools that help us bridge that gap. Um, in the past, for example, when you had new technologies like uh, cars, for example, or you had the parents for kids, right, uh, educating them to to be careful and warn them about the dangers. Same applies to parents trying to teach the kids not to talk to strangers or to, uh, uh, um, I don't know, to, to stay away from bullies. Um, that's It's true that it's kind of tricky. It's very hard to compare between the two, online uh, behavior and responsible uh, online behavior and and crossing crossing the road, right? Because it's kind of it's kind of two new technologies, and our parents, in some way, don't always know what's best for us online. Um, so yeah, it's up to a lot of different factors uh, uh, to educate the online community. Whether it's companies like us with tools like us, whether it's uh, parents to their kids, whether it's people like you and uh, representing the media that help educate the, the people. And yeah, people will have to, I suppose, will have to get burned and, and learn from the lesson and grow from it and, and, and educate themselves and equip themselves better to, to handle those new technologies and new threats that, that are appearing and will continue to appear at a rapid, pay, at a rapid pace. And, and I will add to it that um, uh, in a way, the fact that it happened with Facebook, which is one of the you know, <clears throat> biggest companies in the world um, that attracts so many, you know, uh, um, attention maybe will will make it even uh, better to um, you know with this uh, education process and also there are more uh, things that that are happening in this uh, world with the gdpr in europe the the privacy uh, uh, issue is is like uh, starting to become uh, uh, more and more uh, news and i think everything is you know backing everything and, and i think that uh, you know that's maybe the time to change things People do have a short a short memory, uh, but I think because of the fact it's it's such a big scandal and with such a big company that everyone is is pretty much using, uh, maybe uh, it will change something. Maybe this time is different. Yeah. So, what what are some of the best practices? What's what's the advice that you could give to our listeners? How how should they govern themselves with social media? Well, first, I need to understand what uh, problem social media solves for them and what uh, uh, people who use social media, what kind of problem they solve for the social media websites, right? Uh, you mentioned for us, uh, uh, yourself earlier that social media, such as Facebook, is basically a company that uh, profits from advertising. Um, so as long as people will better understand that they are the product and not basically the customers, it means that uh, Facebook profits from them uh, uh, pouring uh, personal information to the platform. And I believe that people do understand in a way that posting their kids' uh, photos or posting that uh, they're going out uh, on vacation is maybe not the best idea. Uh, uh, but at the same time, people don't necessarily realize that just by the fact they are logged into Facebook and, and browsing all over the web uh, for vacations or for uh, a new uh, a new shirt in their favorite uh, fashion websites and reading uh, content on the favorite uh, news website is also a form of of pouring information and telling uh, more to, uh, about uh, about them to to Facebook yeah for for many people it seems crazy that facebook tracks you all over the web you know the idea if you ask someone 
but I don't have Facebook open. I don't have it open in a tab or a browser. How could they know? It, it seems crazy to people who haven't thought about this before. You're right. And, and again, technology moves fast and there are always new technologies that uh, will we'll try to get our data or will be used against us. So we need to, to be aware all the time. It does not mean that every person in person needs to uh, go to, uh, uh, to, to learn how to code and learn how web technologies work. It's enough to read the, the, the really uh, lots of lots of information out there how to how uh, one can protect oneself from dangers online, whether from uh, list on how to protect themselves when they download new Android apps and which permissions to give, whether how it works and why uh, a certain ad is tracing and tracking them all over the web when they surf. All the information is out there, and it was really, really made accessible and easy to read and easy to learn and easy to understand. It's just a matter of, of uh, one little search, one little query uh, um, on, on Google, basically, to, to, to reach those, uh, those answers. Really simple. There's one more thing we'd like to add. Um, in a way, uh, those who, some people who have interest uh, uh, are trying to tell us that privacy, in a way, is dead that we have no reason to fight for our, our privacy. But in a way, the concept of privacy was made open to debate and infused with conflict. The concept of private will forever be up to us to decide. Our private cars or private photos or uh, private number or private everything, basically it's, it's ours, it's, it's us. No one else will tell me that my private stuff is not mine anymore. But the concept of privacy is debatable. You're always here online. There is no more privacy, no more privacy. But tell that to every person that they need to hand over their private stuff. It's, it's another kind of discussion. So we need to uh, um, kind of switch our, our approach uh, or, or change our mentality or the way we think and consider uh, our private information and how and to whom we hand it to. Absolutely. I, I am so glad that you said that because that's one of the things that you're right. It comes up all the time. You know, the old Eric Schmidt quote telling people that privacy is dead and you're, you're correct. Privacy is what you reclaim. You, you have it if you want it. Exactly. I, I know people that refuse to put anything on a computer, not, not even online, just if they have something that they want to keep absolutely private, they only keep it as a copy offline, or off the computer, in hard copy on paper, because they're so concerned about this. But it, it seems to me that everything is going online. You know, we have, we have uh, Apple Health, we have Google Fit, we have all of our medical records, which we would all pretty much consider to be private information, becoming more and more connected through, whether it's through fitness devices like the Apple Watch and then partnerships with health insurance companies, or or just the idea that medical record systems are becoming more connected. And, and you know, even Apple's talked about making their own medical record system and their own health centers and wellness centers with their own staff of doctors. We, we really do need to... to step back and think more about how our information is used and where it goes, uh, even more so than in the past with all of these things coming together like that. Privacy isn't like uh, cybersecurity. It's not really black or white. Privacy is more like 50 shades of gray. And what I consider private or a danger to my privacy is not something that you would necessarily consider the same. So it means that if you believe that uh, using Apple Health or Fitbit or uh, other technology or whatever other product, uh, if you believe it does not uh, compromise uh, your privacy and or if you're willing to compromise 
some of that privacy uh, in exchange for that benefit, for that value that you're, you're getting, that's perfectly fine. So one person may find Facebook uh, great and post all their personal information online because they're getting something that they find and, and deem valuable, including uh, which, uh, which uh, T-shirt or gadget they, they, they would like or need to buy. But another person may, uh, may consider Facebook as a threat just by opening an account and would rather just stay away from it. So it's really a, a, a subjective decision on, a, on the individual level. Thank you. Now, where, where can people find out more information about My Permissions? So we do have a website, mypermissions.com. And our apps um, are on uh, both uh, Google and Apple uh, uh, app stores. Um, you can also Google my permissions and you'll find like uh, many different uh, um, things about, about it. Um, so just look for my permissions, mypermissions.com, um, and everything is there. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Speaking of privacy, as we were just a minute ago, um, there was a story that you're familiar with about Tim Cook speaking at the China Development Forum. Yeah. This is this is back from over the weekend, and he was speaking directly about Facebook's and their misuse of data. So what did he say? Uh, he was asked if uh, he would uh, – what he would do if he found himself in a similar situation uh, as Mark Zuckerberg and <laughs> – threw some shade and said uh, he would not find himself in that situation. And he's right. Um, Facebook is not a very trustworthy company in my view. Um, and with the Cambridge Analytica information, um, it's only gotten worse. Uh, I think that um, Facebook certainly was uh, taken advantage of by Cambridge Analytica, but Facebook also put themselves in a position for it to happen and did not put proper oversight uh, in place to prevent that type of thing from happening in the first place, which as stewards of personally identifiable information, they should be doing. That's kind of their obligation. Um, you know, whether or not the regulatory hammer in the U.S. will drop on Facebook, um, we will see. Uh, obviously, right now you have a Republican uh, uh, control of all branches of government, and they're, and they're not particularly pro-regulation. Um, and I understand that. I'm not personally especially pro-regulation either, but at some point you have to do something, you know. And uh, this is a situation that's gotten a little out of hand, um, and it's unfortunate. And Apple obviously would never find themselves in this position, which is why Siri is so bad. <laughs> you know, if, if Apple were willing to collect more data, um, then they would be able to hire more data scientists to have a fun sandbox, sandbox to play in because they would just have uh, a lot more data. But Apple puts user privacy first. They've proven that time and time again. And what you've seen here is kind of, uh, it's interesting, you know, Microsoft and Apple are strange bedfellows, obviously rivals for many years and still rivals. Uh, but they are – I feel like a lot of times, you know, because Apple has so much money and they were a company that was reinvented in the iPod, people forget that they are the old guard of tech. Uh, and the old guard of tech, Microsoft and, and Apple uh, versus the new guard um, and their more lax policies on data when it comes to Twitter and Facebook and Amazon to an extent as well. Um, you see how Microsoft and Apple kind of see eye to eye on that and uh, align. And so, you know, I think I agree with what Tim said. I think that he was absolutely right. And uh, I think that uh, Facebook finds themselves in a really bad position, and I don't see it getting any better. 
Yeah, and you know there was a Facebook scientist, a Facebook former Facebook employee, who worked on some of these these projects, talking on Twitter today about how it's a little overblown that the Facebook doesn't sell users' information directly. That Facebook is basically saying we have all this information, and if you'd like to buy an ad to target these people, then you can target a specific demographic, and we can help you do that very well. They aren't actually telling you people. You know, here's your here's your people who have kittens pictures, and you can see their pictures. They're not actually selling the pictures. Um, that that when you download your Facebook archive and scroll through all of the things that Facebook has on you, the things to pay attention to are the ads section. And when you look through the ads section, you can see what Facebook thinks are relevant advertisements for you. Yeah, you can see what categories they've bucketed you in. It's it's pretty creepy stuff. Right, it, it is, but to, to also be aware that it's an inexact science, it's imperfect. For example, if you liked The Oatmeal, which is a popular webcomic, it doesn't mean that you're a foodie, but that Facebook doesn't understand the difference and will put you in a food category. Kashmir Hill is a tech journalist who's been around for a long time, um, and she is currently writing for Gizmodo. And she did an article uh, last year about... She was on Facebook and had a recommended friend, and it turned out that uh, she connected with this person. They started talking, uh, came to discover that her person that she met on there was actually a brother of hers that her father had had um, in an extramarital affair with another woman. And she did not know that this person existed. Uh, they did not know anybody mutually that they could figure out other than, obviously, their father, who was not on Facebook. And so she tried to get in touch with Facebook to find out how they could have possibly done this when nobody else knew. Um, and it's their special sauce, and they won't tell. Yeah, the, the people you may know feature is, um, <laughs> is, is not discussed publicly the there then there are real problems with it like that example like like the example of an adopted child finding their birth parents when the birth parents didn't want to be found or like an attorney whose clients start getting recommended as people they may know each other and you as an attorney do not want your clients talking to each other necessarily because that's like all kinds of things about attorney client privilege and keeping things separate you know um yeah, I just saw a, a speech by Scott Galloway a few days ago. He's a uh, NYU marketing professor and uh, head of a marketing firm L2 that Gartner owns, uh, research and stuff like that. Um, and he has a talk that he does where he wants to see the big four tech companies in the U.S. broken up. He thinks that regulation should come in and split them up. And the talk is interesting because uh, obviously very relevant now with Cambridge Analytica, uh, stolen identities on, on Twitter where people are getting Twitter accounts made in their name, uh, you know, Russian hacking, that sort of stuff. The list goes on. So he thinks that Facebook... Amazon, Twitter, and Apple should be broken up. But I feel like, I mean, I guess I'm biased because I'm an Apple fan, but I feel like his case for breaking up Apple was pretty thin. It's probably the weaker of those because uh, of those four, one of those things is not like the other. He, 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 uh, I think he, he has it included in there because it's just kind of sexy to say, oh, conveniently, he's the four biggest companies they should be broken up. But there's a point in his presentation. He's a great talker and I, it was really engaging and I, and I liked it. Uh, but he, he shows what he thinks they should be broken into as companies. And they're all very logical. But the only case he really makes for splitting up Apple is just Apple, the hardware company, and then the iTunes software company, basically. That's that's what he thinks it should be split up as, and I'm just like, eh, eh, doesn't really seem like that big of a deal to me. But well, fine. But let's talk about 
Apple, the healthcare company, because there's Apple, the hardware company. Let's talk about Amazon, the healthcare company. <laughs> uh, also, also possible, though Apple's a little further along, right? You know, Amazon does not collect your steps and your health data and does not establish didn't they just a make medical a, record. Didn't they just make a, a big acquisition, though? They, they've they made an acquisition, although I'm waiting for them to make another one. I'm looking for them to make an acquisition in pharma. No, they, they and they announced that partnership with healthcare for employees. It's like a... Mm-hmm. And and Apple has one as well. J.P. Morgan and Berkshire Hathaway are in it, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I would argue that they're more into the health business than Apple is at this point with it, with where they're going. A- Apple's hiring physicians assistants and doctors to help them get more accurate data that they collect. No, to provide wellness centers for employees. Well, that's for their employees. That's different. That's not a consumer facing thing yet. I don't think it will be. I think no. I, <laughs> no, I, I think that what they're doing is they want to make sure they can have accurate data so that you, the consumer, can have your data because you, you got to realize this stuff doesn't get uploaded to the cloud or whatever, right? It's just saved on your iPhone. And that data is encrypted, it's secure, and you can share it with your healthcare provider to give you a better assessment of your own health or to help diagnose and find things. That's good. That's technology for a good purpose. Apple's not collecting data to sell it or to, uh, you know, market it or whatever. The, right. Apple has always been a company where what they're selling you is very clear. You can say what you will about their prices and everything's blah, 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 overpriced or whatever. Okay, fine. But at least you know where they're making their money. It's been said a million times, but it's the truth. When it comes to Facebook and Twitter, you are the product. The person using it is the product, and their real customers are advertisers marketing. Think about all the industries that get destroyed by Facebook, you know, the publishing industry, you know, we're Apple Insider working in the publishing industry, right? Uh, the marketing industry, you know, advertisers that now have to deal directly with Facebook and all and Google and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, that is, uh, it's a problem. It's a big problem. And I don't see those same problems with, with Apple. Uh, I don't see them as that kind of a company. And so I don't think, you know, at least in terms of Scott Galloway's talk, I don't think that it's fair to lump Apple in with the likes of Google, Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, that kind of stuff. I'm just looking at the health records on iPhone, which is in beta, which says keep track of clinical health records from multiple sources and automatically receive updates. Right. And you add your account information from participating health networks and hospitals, of which there are 39 so far. Yeah. And and actually, it looks like one of the uh, – no, wow, two. Two of the uh, the networks that I'm in are, are among those 39. And I, and I wouldn't have any concerns about having my data on there because I know that Apple's not harvesting it. If they did start harvesting it, this would be a very different conversation. Yes. The the information retrievable from iPhone or iPad can help patients better understand their health history, have informed conversations with physicians and family members, and maybe make future decisions. The data is encrypted and protected with users' iPhone passcode. And and that's why what Tim said was absolutely right. You know, like he would never find himself in this position because they've proven that they wouldn't put themselves in this position. They make plenty of money selling hardware. They make plenty of money selling hardware and they don't need to do that. Facebook's entire business model is about getting you to engage with the platform so they can learn more about you. That's what they want. Yes. And the more information they can collect about you, the better they can target. You know, I had an ad a few years ago that I saw on Facebook that I was like, wow, this is part genius and part creepy. They knew where I went to college. They knew what year I graduated from college. And so some company out there was selling a series of t-shirts that were the bars that were open in the town you went to college went the year you graduated. And it was like, remember when you used to go to this bar and that bar? Get the t-shirt. You know, Facebook doesn't know 
what college I went to or university I went to. They don't know they don't know which town I was in at that time. They don't know which town I live in now. They they hilariously pick a random bunch of towns that I could have been in, but none of them are the correct answer. Some of them are a little bit kind of close and neighboring to where I would have been, but but they really have no concept at all. They they've totally missed on that part of my profile because I have I have obscured it for years. Yeah, they're they, they don't they're not transparent about it. They they rope you into these features and don't really they're not really upfront about why they want this information. And so it's like you know you go on there and you know they want you to tell your favorite quote and uh, give me a little bio about you and tell me where you live. And if you don't fill it out, it keeps like bugging you. You go back to your own pages like oh why don't you tell us where you live in these days? What's going on? And you think, oh, well, that's okay. Sure, why not? They, they, they make it uh, fun and engaging and all that. But then now you see the consequences of it. Now you see the problem with it. Now you see why you can't trust this company. I've been beating that drum for years. Though. This is nothing new. Yeah, no, I, I get that. It's not fair to people who are not tech savvy and don't really know. They go onto the platform, they engage, they connect with friends, whatever. And then all of a sudden this happens and it's like, wow, I didn't, I didn't know that, that was happening. And how could they? <coughs> yeah. So I've I've gone ahead and added that health record stuff while we were sitting here talking and I'm checking out all the uh all the the data they have on me. But that's good. That's helpful. Yeah. You know, uh one of the stories we have this week is Apple complying with GDPR, which is a new law in Europe where they're actually doing something about your data and what's it, your What's it stand for, Neil? Uh it stands for General, General. Uh, data. data Protection Regulation, I think? Yes. Yes, we have a winner. Okay. So, yeah. And this is something that's going to affect in May that's going to have a big uh, effect on a lot of technology companies and a lot of uh, services because they have a lot of personal information. And uh, there are two key parts to it that are very interesting and exciting and relate to this as well. So th these are what they are saying are basic human rights online. One is that you have a right to be forgotten, which means if you tell Facebook to forget about you, you know that they will delete all your data and it's guaranteed, supposedly, and there will be regulation to make sure. Uh, that this happens. Uh, the other thing is that you have data portability, which means that you can now take data from one service and then potentially bring it to another one um, and take it with you as you see fit. This is kind of a nightmare for companies <laughs> because uh, they don't have systems built for this, but I think ultimately it's a good thing for consumers because you should be able to have control over that data. And uh, Apple has issued an update so that they are compliant with GDPR, which is great. Um, but I think that a lot of the stuff they were doing is already compliant with the spirit of this law. And Apple Health is a great example of that. Um, you the device the device saves all of the information. It's not put in the cloud. Um, it's encrypted. Um, it is you have the ability to export it to other apps uh, and services and that sort of stuff. And that's the way it should be. Absolutely. Health information yeah. is very very personal, uh, and it should be treated with the utmost respect. And Apple is very transparent about the way that things work with the health app and the data that they collect. And I think that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And now I, I downloaded all of my Facebook data. I downloaded all of my Google data. And downloading all of my Google data took quite a while. It took me about three days to actually get it mm -hmm. done over gigabit fiber because they just have so much. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I've, I, I've been doing this as a part of, so I wrote an article that we published on our site last week. Well, no, we published this week actually about, um, scaling back your Facebook usage. What, what do you do to try and minimize your exposure if you're not able to actually remove yourself entirely? Right. And I, I've been thinking about doing something similar with, uh, an article about Google because I downloaded all of my Google drive data. I downloaded all of my Gmail and, and synchronizing that was a little difficult because they throttle IMAP after a while. Mm-hmm. But there's some open source projects that help you get around that problem. And uh, so I've downloaded my Google Drive and all of my email to a network attached storage device. And if I wanted to, I could vacate all of that data, delete it all, and totally bail out of Google. Of course, I can't do that because I'm changing my ISP from AT&T Fiber to Google Fiber, which you know, they, they, one of the things they give you when you do that is they give you one terabyte of Google drive storage. So now I've got more stuff that I'm thinking, gosh, am I going to get sucked in and use that? But the, uh, you know, the, 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 what it comes down to is that none of these are good actors, right? They all have their own motivations. They all have their own things. Uh, AT&T for years had, had a bad reputation for both throttling and for their relationship with handing over all and any customer data on a moment's notice. You know, they, they were very happy to allow their whole line trunk to be tapped completely, where Google is slightly more uh, put off by that kind of thing. So I, I feel relatively comfortable in using Google as the ISP, but I, I'm going to be removing some of my information from there to, to, to minimize my exposure there. Now, there are people who have the opinion that removing the data is not the right thing, that, that what you really want to do is, is hide within the noise by creating a profile that is very milquetoast. You know, these are uh, complicated issues, right? Because your right to be forgotten is nice in principle, but mm, what about your right to know something about somebody, right? Like if you commit a crime and you want it scrubbed from the internet, do you have a right to do that? Mm, Do do consumers or other people have a right to find out about it? Uh, So they are complicated issues. This is not... quite so simple, uh, but I think it's a step in the right direction to have a policy in place that uh, puts consumers' interests in mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. We've talked about a lot of stuff, though, and we haven't even touched on the fact that there was new hardware announced this week, so we should probably get to that. Hardware? Well, I, I, I gotta tell you, before we talk about that, I want to tell you about the very best thing. Mm-hmm. New iWork Suite. Ooh. Updates to pages, updates to numbers, updates to Keynote. Oh, boy. You don't use those? Uh, I use Pages. <laughs> really? Yeah. What do you what do you do with Pages? Uh, I'll get like uh, documents sent to me and stuff that are Microsoft Word, and I open them in Pages. Oh, okay. I do all my writing and text edit though, plain text. Okay. okay. I do all my writing in uh, in IA Writer. But, gosh, Pages. Wow. Okay. I use, I use Keynote a lot. I use Keynote quite a bit. And uh, I've I've loved Keynote for years, ever since it was first released. And the only product that I ever loved quite as much as I loved Keynote, almost as much, was a product called 280 Slides. And 280 Slides was a web app that looked remarkably like Keynote and worked remarkably like Keynote, except it was on the web. And I wish Apple had bought it. And uh, so I, I the, the big update here is that you can use a pencil and hand markup any of these three types of documents. And when you do, you're not on, on an iPad. You're not just creating a, a another layer with markup that's overlaid over it. The handwriting that you do is actually tied to the text word or image or object that 
your marking up, which is unique. Uh, you know, Google allows for people to mark up things on documents, but when they do, they're just creating a layer over the top of it that's not actually tied to the object that's being marked up. So this is kind of a, a big change for for markup and for editing. And uh, you know, I was watching the Verge's live stream of the event when this was announced, and he commented something to the effect of, I'm requiring all of our writers to compose everything in pages from now on so that he could then mark it up and edit using the pencil. It's it's a big change. Cool. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah. But this leads to the question. It's, it says, you know, if there's new hard if there's new applications and they require a pencil to do the markup, what hardware are people doing that on? Well, uh, if they are in a school, maybe they'd be interested in a new $300 iPad. Yeah, with a $49 crayon. Yeah. Which could be cool. No, I, I'm, um, I thought that last year's $330 iPad uh, with the A9 processor um, and the legacy uh, 9.7-inch design knocked it out of the park. Uh, I think that that is the absolute best value in Apple's entire product lineup. Uh, I think that at that price, what that product offered uh, was a complete home run. And I didn't think they'd update it this year because it was already more than capable hardware. I mean, if you bought one last year, uh, even if you bought one this year, it's still a really good iPad. But um, clearly it's uh, helping drive sales for them and uh, uh, they wanted to push a little further in education. So they held a special event this week, a small one, and it's not going to be super exciting to the type of people that listen to this podcast who are into the, as they say, uh, speeds and feeds. But uh, they, it, I think it's going to be a great entry-level iPad. I think it's a great addition. I think adding pencil support is great. Um, I, I think it's, a, I think it's a, another home run. I think this is a really great product. I think it's a wonderful product, and it's a big miss. And why is that? So here's the problem. The education market is is really driven by a few different things. And one of them is the affordability of the device mm -hmm. and the ease of management of the device. That's the IT side of it and purchasing side of it. And so Chromebook, which is, as we know, a big success in education, they cost around 130 bucks. You know, if you if you want to buy one retail on Amazon, you can spend 150 bucks easy. You can spend 140 bucks if you look a little longer. You can spend 180 bucks and you'll be doing fine. The the very best ones are closer to the 270 mark, but but there are plenty of them. Plenty, plenty, plenty of them available around that 150 mark. And if you're in education, you get a discount. So, let's just say 129 bucks, okay? And in terms of management, Google has really got down the administration for these kinds of things. You create your student roster, you give them all accounts, you issue those accounts at the beginning of the year, they can sign into anything that will accept the Google account, and it will be theirs. They can do it whether it's apps on iOS, they can do it whether it's a Chromebook. They sign in with their school account, job done. And in terms of privacy... Google doesn't collect any information on those school accounts. They know that they're kids. As far as those kids are concerned, they they don't track the way that they would a Google account belong that that's belonged to that's owned by you or I. The downside in terms of privacy is is that single sign-on works. So if you take a student account and then sign into someone else's app using Google's single sign-on, right? Google Connect, then then those other third parties do track, do kind of treat it the same as always, because they have no idea that it's a student account. But 
In addition to the administration part of it, Google Classroom is really quite good. Google Classroom allows a teacher to assign a piece of work, allows the student to submit that work, allows the student to retract and resubmit, and, and turn in work, all using this interface. And it's really slick. It's good. Um, they have the typical docs, numbers, slides, uh, docs, sheets, and slides. And really, the the biggest problem that the IT people have at a school is trying to manage the bandwidth within the school. You know, I was talking with the, the IT at, at guy at my kid's school because I, I was going to offer to do a wireless survey and, and help him place his APs better, place his access points better within the building. And he said, that's not my problem. I don't care where the access points are. We don't have enough access points anyway. I don't really need to know where the signal drops are. I said, really? That's interesting. What's your problem? He says, well, my problem is that I have a limited amount of bandwidth and I have to divide it up among all these students. And so I've throttled them all down to um, about 10 meg. He's, he's throttled them down. No, he throttled them down to um, around one meg. So broadband from 10 years ago, basically. And, you know, stuff that's slow, slow that we no longer consider it fitting the definition of broadband. And he said he was doing that because, you know, if, if they're all looking for YouTube videos to include in their slide presentation, then it hammers the network and he can't figure out how to handle it better. So he's, he's busy being gatekeeper and punishing them for using data rather than worrying about where the weak points are on his network. And that's my rant about that guy. But the that, that's the thing is that the purchasing decision is the IT guy is going to recommend something that secures his job. That's why for years and years and years, school IT guys always recommended Windows because they meant it meant that they would always have a job fixing Windows. Here, they recommend Google because it's cheap. And if a kid breaks a screen, they just get another one for 120 bucks, 130 bucks, and they don't have to worry about it. Uh, and in fact, they send a letter home at, at the beginning saying, get your kids a Chromebook, get your kids a laptop. Do not send them with an expensive tablet because if they break the screen, they're going to be out of luck. And you know when they say expensive tablet, they're referring to one specific device. So that, that happens at a lot of schools, not just the one that my kids go to. And Apple is taking a different approach. Apple is approaching it from not what school are today with in terms of the, the management of submitting work and stuff like that and the, the administration side of it. Apple's approaching it from what could we do that would allow classes to be more creative? So what can we do to help teachers understand how to use shapes within Keynote and then they can give a lesson on here's a presentation and the kids can all use shapes within Keynote and it'll be awesome. And that's cool, but it's it's not really where curricula are today. So Apple is, is focused on what a classroom could be in the future, what an ideal classroom would be that would also, by the way, take advantage of Apple hardware and Apple software. But but they're not really, you know, they they can't address the $129 machine. Does that $129 machine There's have a no touch way, screen? No, and it doesn't matter. What if kids would rather interact with a touchscreen? What if it makes it more engaging for them? Uh, it hasn't made a difference. As I said, you know, it's it's about what they're doing today is versus what they could be doing, right? I, so, I, I, I don't see this as that big of a deal. I, I, this is not... What, what they did, so they've Apple's divided among three roles. They have the ASM, or the Apple School Manager, and that's the person who's supposed to be the IT person setting up the accounts. They have the classroom management side of it, and the classroom management side of it is the side that says that teachers can peek into and have displayed on their iPad what's going on on the student's iPad so they can monitor without having to look over everyone's shoulders, virtually looking over the shoulders as opposed to walking around kind of thing. And 
then there's the creative class lesson side of it. And that's that's really what they're trying to ask of teachers is to learn all these tools. And to do that, they've created a site. They've got Apple Teacher, which uses your Apple ID and offers all kinds of training across different applications so that you can imp- and, and, and some suggestions for lessons, you know, how to use clips within your class kind of thing. And it's a very nice site. It's lovely. The the quizzes for training are really well done. They're short. They're to the point. They don't take so long. The presentation, the information is easy. So if, if you were a teacher and not overburdened with everything else already going on in your life as a teacher, which, of course, all teachers are because we ask a ton of teachers without necessarily accounting for how many hours there are in the day. Um it's pretty cool, but it's, 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 you know, it's sort of how much more do you want to lay on the teacher that they have to go learn keynote? I think you're overthinking this. <laughs> Maybe. I, I, I think that, uh, you know, that I taught high school, right? I know. I, and, okay. and, and, and I, I, I'm not really looking at this from a perspective of what's going to make sure that every student in every school has an iPad. I'm looking at this from the perspective of, it was eight years ago now that the first iPad was introduced. And when we knew there was an Apple tablet coming, a mythical Apple tablet, there were a lot of misconceptions about what it would be. But the biggest one, and the, arguably the biggest surprise at that first uh, unveiling by Steve Jobs was the price at four ninety nine, And people were like, wow, that's a great deal. Well, here we are eight years later, and with inflation and everything else, and you're getting a extremely capable device that will last you for four or five years easily, um, that has a gorgeous display, touch ID, thin design, long battery life, run down the list. The thing's awesome, and it costs you $329, or if you're a school, $299. Let's not lose sight of the fact that here we are eight years later, and the device has gotten not only better, but cheaper. And considerably cheaper to a point now where it's like almost a no-brainer purchase for some people. Right, but not not for strapped schools that are strapped on budget. I, I understand that. And Apple so, certainly presented this as an education. This is really play. the biggest miss, if there's a miss. And that is they have Swift Playgrounds, yes? And Swift Playgrounds teaches you to do some stuff, but it doesn't really allow you to actually write anything of your own that you could then share and run on another iPad. And so if we're talking about you know, having these kinds of, of applications and having these kinds of learning is how we get to having future engineers, which is one of the things that Tim Cook talked about. We really ought to be able to to take the one programming environment that we actually have on the iPad and turn it into something that allows kids to write and then run and share across other iPads. And it's not there yet. Well, yeah, but the software could be. You can really program well on a Chromebook either. Well, yeah. (laughs) I mean, to to do that, what you really need is to have a server somewhere that you can then remotely log into via the browser, which is possible, but it's a heck of an environment to set up. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of changes that that need to come and will inevitably come to iOS and future software updates. And, you know, hopefully uh, Apple makes a point of that uh, with iOS 12 this year, and we see you know, good multi-user support and, you know, some changes coming in that direction. Now, you had questions about the Logitech accessories that were also announced at this event. And one of the, so there, there were really two Logitech accessories, right? There's the crayon, which looks a little like a pencil, except that it's flat, more like a carpenter's pencil than anything. 
Um, and, and, and some of the comments online suggested that this was something that Johnny would never have allowed out, right? Because it's got the tethered cap for charging. It's got uh, this flat design as opposed to something round. It's, it's just something he would have had great disdain for. But at 49 bucks, Apple shared some of the technology that's in the pencil with Logitech, and Logitech created a, a stylus-like device. And it doesn't have all the same features, but it has a bunch, right? It has the low latency, it has palm rejection, it has tilt, um, doesn't have the pressure sensing part of it, but it's a really well-done stylus. And what's cool about it is that instead of the pairing by having to plug it into the lightning port of the iPad, um, these things use a different radio frequency and you can use them across many iPads, which is great for a school environment where if you have, you know, 50 of the things and 50 of the crayons, 50 iPads and 50 crayons, you don't want to, you don't want to worry about matching them up. That's going to be a nightmare. Yep. There's no way you'll ever solve that problem in a school. So this is the way they solve it by not making that an issue. That sounds like a win to me. I think that's great. Definitely. The rugged case and rugged combo is basically designed to protect the iPad because you you and I both know if there's an LCD screen that can be broken, it will be broken. Mm-hmm. And I when I managed a lab, I had uh, 20 iBooks, the iBook G3s back then. And there were inevitably one or two that always got their screens broken. And instead of trying to deal with Apple for fixing them, it was easier to go and buy a used display and replace the LCD in the iBook back then. Mm-hmm. Here, it's hard to do that on iPad. So they've made this giant rugged case that goes around it. It's kind of bulky, kind of square, has a kickstand, kind of like a Surface, Microsoft Surface, has a, a keyboard that attaches to it. And it's it's impact resistant, and it's spill resistant, and it's drop resistant, and it's darn near impossible to take the case off unless you do it properly. It's, it's pry resistant. You can't just pry it apart. And you know that students would if they could. Uh-huh. So... They've really designed this thing for the environment. It's not something you'd necessarily get if you weren't in schools, but it makes sense for that environment. And and kids are terrible on hardware. My my daughter tells me all the time that she dropped her laptop. It just slipped out of my hands, Dad. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. And I have I have pushed out the dents on an aluminum MacBook and and I have I have given her a Chromebook to use for a little bit. And there's there's always she drops them. She does. That's why I liked her going with the iPad. But she says when she takes her iPad to school, the Wi-Fi doesn't work for it because the guy who's manning that doesn't put his APs in the proper place. So there's just no win. Well, this is a minor event. Um, but I think it's a win. Um, I, you know, it's not, it's not for me. I am not the market for this. I'm really excited about a new 2018 12.9 inch iPad pro with face ID. And we'll probably get that, you know, September, I'd guess at this point, um, if not WWDC. Uh, but I think for the market that they're going for here, which is not just education. I mean, obviously this is pitched as an education focused event, but I think that for anybody just looking to get a regular iPad, this is a great deal. Uh, three, Oh, it's more affordable than an iPad Mini Four. Yeah, it's a, by about seventy bucks. Now, nah, this, this is a knockout product. Another another great win for them um, in the iPad lineup. And uh, yeah, I, I think that this is just. I'm, I, I was I was not personally in, invested in the announcement, but I think that at that price, it's really hard to. It's an easy recommendation, right? If somebody said, "What do you think about this iPad?" You know, I want to get a tablet, whatever. For three hundred thirty bucks, go for it. Awesome. Yeah. Now, I want to mention a little bit about the event, because the event was run slightly differently than other events in the past. Yeah, it was in Chicago. and Well, at a typical event, right? At a typical Apple event, they have the stage announcement, the keynote, 
And then they shuffle everyone off into a room or tent or other area where they have the hardware set up and everyone fights over getting a few seconds of hands-on time with it so they can photograph it and send it back to the website and say, hey, look, we were there. We had our hands on it, right? And this was more like a mini WWDC where instead of being shoved in that small tent with the devices, instead they had classrooms because they're at a school and they used those classrooms with a teacher and an Apple engineer to talk about what they were doing and why and how it could be used and applied. And that seems like such a better approach. It's, it's, it's neat. That's cool. I, I think it's cool. I really, I think that there's a lot good about the way that event was run. Now let's change gears again. And you, you know that, that years ago I worked for a couple of different companies that made accessories for these devices. Right. And my competitor was was always Belkin. In any of these things, Belkin was the competitor. And I've had friends who worked for Belkin and I, I've known people there for years and they're they're good people. And for a long time they made all these devices. And and you know, people said things like, you know, I would never buy a Belkin device now because they were all, you know, that's too expensive compared to what you can get from any other competitor. Maybe so. But for a long time they really cared about their design and and their quality. They have been purchased by Foxconn. Yeah. So Foxconn snapped up Belkin. And when Foxconn snapped up Belkin, they snapped up Linksys and Wemo by extension. Now, Wemo was always started at Belkin. It wasn't an acquisition. And Wemo was the uh, the home automation play that only recently, only in January, gained HomeKit compatibility. Uh, Linksys started off as networking equipment on their own. They got bought by Cisco. Cisco decided they were done with them and sold them on to Belkin. So they've been all over. But this is this is kind of a big shift because in this market, so uh, Incipio, Incipio bought up um, Braven, bought up Griffin Technology, uh, snapped up a few others, and so they've been consolidating all of those. Yeah, uh, Zag, who did the Invisible Shield for so long, bought up iFrogs and Mophie, and they bought up iFrogs years and years ago, but they bought up Mophie relatively recently. Uh, Foxconn snapping up these ones, it's it's really an interesting, weird period of consolidation at this time, I think, right? I think it's a tough spot for the industry because there are so many cheap Chinese knockoffs that come out and oftentimes hit the market before because they don't follow the same licensing requirements uh, with companies like Apple. So, like, for example, um, I'm sitting here right now and I popped my uh, iPhone 10 out of a battery case that I used in the the power button overlay on this plastic case just broke off and I'm kind of ticked off about it. But the name of this company is Appatronics. And the reason I bought this case... Mark of quality right there, huh? Yeah, and the reason I bought this case and not a uh, Mophie one or whatever was because A, it was available like at launch. I could get a battery case, so I've had it for a while now. Uh, and B, it was cheap. I think I paid like 30 bucks for this, and if I was going to get a if I was going to get a Mophie one, it would be like 100 bucks or something. I like my Mophie products a lot. Uh, but they didn't have anything out because they have to get the licensing and all that with Apple and all and that kind of stuff. So, you know, I'm guilty of it too. I think a lot of people are guilty of it. And that makes it a tough space to be in because you got to compete against the likes of this. And they make good enough products for very cheap that ship before everybody else. So, you know, good luck to Foxconn. I'm not a huge Belkin fan. I, I own a few Belkin things here and there. But... 
Nah, they're they're in my view as an accessory maker pretty ho hum. Um, I think that uh, Logitech is one of the better accessory makers out there right now, which is exactly why you see Apple partnering with them on things like the crayon and the iPad case and the smart keyboard and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Belkin, you know, whatever happens with Foxconn, whether the quality changes or they take a different direction or whatever, I, I wouldn't consider Belkin to be a very high quality uh, accessory maker. Well, they did have the advantage of for a long – they were the first to launch home automation stuff with Amazon for the Echo. You know, they, they were the very first to be compatible as, as any kind of device to work with Echo. Mm-hmm. They have a long history of doing things that were cool to do. Um, Linksys similarly has a long history. They were the first easy-to-use home Wi-Fi router that was not an Apple one. They were the first to go ahead and support open source like uh, DDWRT firmware or OpenWRT firmware on the Linksys router named because WRT because the, the Linksys model name was WRT54G or the the 54GL that stood for Linux, which meant you could load the open source firmware on it. You know, that was officially supported. These are cool moves. They, they are not a bad company. And um, what's going to be interesting to see is what becomes of them now, because Foxconn is so big. I, I, I worry that it's easy for a brand to get lost within Foxconn. You know, you, you end up having your stuff being produced by not the, not the A team, not the B team, but maybe the C or the D team kind of thing. And, you know, having your product worked on by the janitorial staff on weekends is, is not what you really want. Well, now that my battery case is missing this button, I want one with a USB-C port on it because this micro USB port is garbage (laughs) or a lightning port. That'd be cool too. Yeah. USB-C wouldn't be impossible. And actually, what you could do is you could do USB-C with a built-in Qi charging, so you don't actually have to talk to Apple for any of it. For any Th- of it. This one has Qi charging built in, this Alpatronics one. Yeah. So if you did Qi in the back of the battery case and USB-C to the, to the battery case, you don't have to talk to Apple to do any of that approval. You could totally make that thing. Not if you're using the Qi charging. Oh, oh, oh. So this one does Qi to recharge the battery. Right. I'm so. saying use Qi on the inside to charge the phone. But yeah, that's what I've been wanting for a while now. I want a battery case that just leaves the lightning port on the bottom of it. I'm saying. You want to build that? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. All right. On that note, we have come to the end of another great Apple Insider podcast. I'd like to mention again about Breach, the uh, the new podcast that led off the, the beginning of the show. Again, they are a podcast that takes you inside the world's biggest hacks. They set out to answer questions about the hack of a huge American company and find themselves investigating a Russian conspiracy. Subscribe to Breach, B-R-E-A-C-H, in your podcast app right now. Neil, we've missed you. Where can people find you? (laughs) You can find me on Twitter at thisisneil, N-E-I-L. And let me know if you have a USB-C or Lightning uh, iPhone X battery case. And I'm your host, Victor, and you can find me on Facebook. Um, no, Google. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know. Twitter's good this week. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. You can find me on iCloud at... No, you can find me on Twitter at VMark. Can we find you on iTunes Ping? You know, you could. You <laughs> absolutely could for the longest time until that went away. Yeah. And I think that was a miss by Apple. I think they should have learned some lessons from that. And, and this is sort of a global lesson, right? You and I have talked before about how FaceTime should have been opened up the way they promised that it was going to be opened up. Right, yeah, yeah. So I, I think Ping suffered in part from the problem of being 
Apple only, and not just Apple only, but iTunes only. Right, yeah. And had it been a social network that wasn't built into iTunes only, or had it lived on the web and also used iTunes as a client, Mm -hmm. that it should have been open to everyone. It should have been open to Android users. It should have been open to PC users. It should have been open to anyone with a browser. And had it been open like that, it would have stood more of a chance. It wouldn't have necessarily won the same way that that Google Buzz or Google Plus didn't necessarily win or Orcut only really won in South America. But it, it's, it, it seems like it was crippled by being too insular. So there you go. Find me on iTunes ping at <laughs> VMARS. And we will be back next week with more. Thank you so much. <laughs>